Behavior Grooves. My name is Kurt Nelson. And I'm Tim Houlihan, and this is the podcast where we discuss why we do what we do and ways we can apply behavioral science to improving our lives at home and at work. So, Kurt, I have a question for you. Okay. Have, have you ever missed a scheduled medication? Uh, yeah. So, so I, I will have to say, um, when I was younger, I probably did. I've, I've actually gotten better. I'm on a cholesterol-lowering uh, medication right now that was prescribed to me about nine months ago. Happily, I've established rituals and habits so that I have been 100% compliant on that. Uh, Way to go. For those nine months. However, I did in pre- prior to that, there are times where I wasn't quite as good. How about you? Yeah, I've had the experience of you know being prescribed 10 days of antibiotics and I get two or three days into it and I'm feeling better. And I'm like, ah, screw it. I don't need to take the rest of them. And then later I get my hand slapped by my physician. (laughs) (laughs) I think we've all been there. And that's the problem that that our guest, Matt Loper, is trying to solve, right, with his company uh, and and working on how do you get people to be adherent to their their medical needs, right? So Matt is the CEO and co-founder of Wealth, an app and company that helps people with chronic conditions improve their health. Matt's company works with healthcare providers and insurers to provide rewards for patients who need that small behavioral intervention to help them stay on track. Yeah, you know, I got to say, Kurt, that one of the things I really appreciate about doing this podcast is that we get to talk to people like Matt. You know, I mean, he's working in two worlds, right? One as an investor and a business leader. And then the other is this caring world citizen to positively impact the way people with chronic diseases live their lives. You know, kind of reminds me of our discussion with Anurag Vaish at Final Mile or Rob Burnett at Well Told Story. I mean, honestly, Matt just inspires me to have hope in a world that can sometimes just appear a little too crazy. I I agree. And I think this episode reinvigorates that hope for me, right? And so, you know, Tim, we started this podcast on a whim more than 75 episodes ago, right? We found that our, our passions kind of resonated with people from around the globe, what, over 100 countries that people are listening to us in. But we need to keep growing, right? We want to keep growing because we want to increase this community of people. And in order for that to really happen, we would appreciate it if our listeners would share their happy experience with with others. And you can do that by going out to podcast and rating us or leaving us a comment. And that really increases the chance that services like Apple will highlight us in their recommendations. Yeah, we would really appreciate that very much. That's for sure. I just want to reiterate what Kurt said about behavioral groups being self-sponsored, and we have no advertisers. So we're not asking for donations, but we are asking for the review, and that will help us expand our reach. So you could do this uh, just in as little as nine seconds. If you like our discussion with Matt Loper, please just leave us a short review. In the Apple Podcast app, click on Library at the bottom navigation, then choose Shows at the top of the page, Once in the shows, click on Behavioral Groove and scroll past many, many, many episodes to the bottom where you will see the words ratings and reviews, where you can rate us and give us a short review if you so like. Hey, to use Roger Dooley's words, it's frictionless. (laughs) (laughs) I just want to add in that our grooving session went beyond Matt's comments and talked about a lot of things with extrinsic and intrinsic motivation, the endowment effect, and various different things. So as you're listening, stay tuned and stay listening after our interview. 
So sit back with your favorite summer beverage and enjoy our conversation with Matt Loper. Welcome to the Behavioral Grooves Podcast. Thanks so much for having me, guys. It, it is our pleasure. We are super excited to have you. And as usual, we tend to start with a speed round. So first speed round question. Uh, prefer a bike or a unicycle? Bike. <laughs> Monet or Michelangelo? Um, I, like, I like the Impressionists, so I'm going to go with Monet. All right. Uh, if you had to live without a phone or a laptop, which would you choose to live without? Laptop. Yeah, he's, he's of that generation. <laughs> there you go. All right, Matt. Uh, which would be better, to get rewarded for taking your meds or doing it just because it's the right thing to do? <laughs> it would be great if everyone could just do it because it's the right thing to do. Unfortunately, our human psychology doesn't work that way. Which, which leads right into some of the work that you're doing, right? So tell us a little bit about wealth and some of the work that you do with that and a little bit uh, about the background of that. Great. So is this still speed round or can this be more long? No, this is definitely not speed <laughs> round. You don't have to do the quick, quick, quick. We're done with speed round. Great. Uh, so at Wealth, what we do is we help motivate patients with very serious chronic conditions to just simply do the behaviors they're supposed to, right? The, the things that doctors tell them to do, the things that they know rationally they should do, but often end up not doing, um, like just take your medications as prescribed. Um, so what we use is, is kind of um, the core principles of behavioral economics and understanding why people might not be taking their medications, because even though they know that blood pressure medicine is good for them, you know, down the road when they take it right now, they feel no different right now. So therefore it doesn't become a priority in their list of things to really worry about on a daily basis. So what we do is we create um, programs and, and disseminate those programs through scalable technology. We work with the insurance companies and the hospital systems that care for those patients. And we focus on just the very, very high risk patients, those who have recently had heart attacks or heart failure admissions, those that had you know, very serious chronic conditions like diabetes, hypertension, cardiovascular disease, COPD, asthma, behavioral health conditions. And we really focus on underserved populations, especially. So about 80% of our um, users are from Medicaid eligible populations, which means they're, um, you know, kind of below the federal poverty line. In many cases, they're getting benefits from, from the government to kind of pay for their health care. Yeah, it's interesting. I thought that that was really interesting uh, in uh, reviewing the, the kind of work that you're doing, that you focus specifically on chronic diseases and specifically on underserved populations. What led you in those two directions? So I think there are so many factors, uh, a lot of business factors, a lot of luck, a lot of just kind of social, you know, feeling of, of, of kind of social good. Um, so, you know, kind of the reason we focus on chronic conditions um, and, and specifically even those who are not currently doing what they're supposed to do or managing that, that condition well is because we realized as a business, um, you know, there's all these sexy health tech companies being created where they're creating really cool apps or devices, but they're giving away those apps or devices and those who engage with those apps or devices are, are those who are probably more um, intrinsically motivated or already doing the things they're supposed to or very into healthcare technology, you know, I'm a big health geek and 
I would love to have all these fancy, you know, continuous glucose monitors. And I, you know, I track my, my steps every day. I would love to track my sleep. That's my next project. Uh, and I'm like a self-optimizer biohacker. Um, but that's not who consumes the majority of healthcare. So we went to the business problem. Of who is it that's consuming the most care? And it's those who are the sickest and um, those who are the least adherent to their care plan. Uh, on, on kind of the underserved population side, um, you know, when we look at the market, we think Medicaid is a huge market that, you know, about one in three um, Californians here in California are currently served by Medi-Cal, which is California State Medicaid. Um, so it's a huge market. It's a growing market with the Affordable Care Act expanding eligibility for Medicaid. The prevalence of the disease states we serve is higher. The access to health care and health literacy is lower. So the need is therefore higher for an intervention to really improve these behaviors. And really, um, you know, we want to help the patient populations that need the most help that can use the help the most. Um, so that's kind of why we ended up predominantly focusing on Medicaid to start. Um, and I think we're starting to see really good traction and results there and starting to move up the chain there to more, you know, Medicare, Medicare Advantage type populations as well. So it's not that behavioral economic principles don't work with the other populations. It's just that seemed like the, the most viable patient population to begin with, right? <laughs> yeah, and there absolutely is. A, there are a number of studies I've looked at. The difference um, in, in the, in the effect, efficacy of the interventions at the different socioeconomic groups, and yeah. as you expect, you know, they are most powerful in the lowest income groups um, in terms of giving away incentives. Um, but they are still very powerful in, in kind of the middle and higher income groups. So um, that's another added bonus is, is working with lower income groups. You know, uh, we can stretch smaller budgets, smaller dollars into much bigger impact uh, just because the need of, of that um, you know, financial reward is, is higher. So help us understand how, it, how a, and I can know probably every program is, is slightly different, but a, a, a more typical program. How does one, how does it work? What are you doing? How are you actually applying these behavioral economic principles to drive those behaviors? Great. So uh, let's, let's use a typical, um, you know, user journey of, of our patient population. So someone, you know, who maybe has a previous history of, of hospitalizations for heart failure um, gets touched by us in a number of different touch points. So that's, um, could be uh, a mailer that they receive in the mail that is co-branded with our brand and their health insurer. It could be an email, it could be a text message, or it could be even a phone call. And they get this touch point and basically the message is simple. All you have to do is download this app and you have, let's call it 180 bucks over the next six months in your account the second you download this app. So it's about 30 bucks a month of rewards. So that's the endowment effect, um, right? That's one of the core principles that um, Richard Thaler got the Nobel Prize for in 2017. That's the reason that, um, you know, American Airlines, when you're about to land at your destination, they'll say, hey, everyone, if you sign up for a credit card right now, you'll get 60,000 miles. Uh, yeah. And that's enough to take you and your loved ones to Europe on a trip, right? So um, that gets right, way higher enrollment rates into the offer because we're giving the credit up front. Hey, this is your 180 bucks. All you have to do is download this app. It's yours. It takes about five minutes to enroll and you're, you're done. Um, then once they're onboarded, right, we walk them through. Um, so, you know, since we serve predominantly Medicaid and Medicare populations, you know, the 
tech savviness isn't quite as good as as you know some of the younger generations, but it's still you know surprisingly high penetration of smartphones. Actually, Deloitte put out put out a study this year that 86% of Medicaid eligible individuals actually have a smartphone these days, which is exactly the national average. Wow. Which also is something that's been fascinating to learn over the course of time is, you know, there's a lot of preconceived notions about our users and, and the people that are the type of demographic we serve. And often those preconceived notions are false. These people actually all have smartphones and love using them. Um, so, you know, it's a pretty easy process to get down, downloaded into the app. Um, you know, one of our core tenets of behavior change is motivate something to happen and let it happen as easily as possible. So we don't want a lengthy, time-consuming, painful process for any of our steps, whether it's onboarding onto our app, whether it's checking in on a daily basis. Um, so once they're in, they get their care plan set for them. So we walk them through, we know you're on these medications, what times do you take them in the morning, what times do you take them at night? Uh, every day they get reminded, hey, of that 180 bucks, all you have to do today is just snap a couple of the pills in your hand to avoid losing two of those 180 bucks, right? So that's the loss of version at work. Um, so we endow the progress up front, take away the money if they don't do the behavior, and then reinforce the behavior every day. Um, so one of the things that we're really interested in is not just changing behaviors one time or changing behaviors for a short period of time, but forming habits that stick. So um, we look to a lot of the work of kind of another field of research in, in habit formation, um, you know, started by kind of a lot of addiction therapists, then moved to you know, books like The Power of Habit. So there's every day there's a trigger, time to take your medications to avoid loss of dollars. There's a behavior that can be done easily and simply. Um, you just snap a code and close in your hand. And then right away, this immediate and salient reward directly tied back to that behavior. Great job taking your medications. You kept your $2 for the day. You do that repetitively over the course of about the first 90 days. You start to form these really sticky habits. We actually see in the data, even over about two weeks, we can just get someone do it over the course of about two weeks. They're very, very, very likely to stick with the program long-term. We now have patient populations that have been doing this for two years and they're you know, elderly diabetics who previously weren't adhering to medications and still 90% adherent two years later. So it's wow. been a really cool problem to work on. I think the holy grail, uh, and I'll, I'll stop in a second, is, you know, we've been using these extrinsic motivators to get people onto the program, get them doing the behavior every day, trying to form this habit. The holy grail is, you know, there's this concept that the extrinsic crowds out the intrinsic motivation uh, and, you know, those forces oppose each other. Um, my personal opinion is there's no reason why that has to be true. That's just the way that we've historically tested these programs and structured these programs. Uh, one of the biggest things we're trying to do right now is bring the intrinsic back and reinforce the extrinsic with the intrinsic. For example, uh, talked about that, that user flow every day, checking your medications as prescribed. Great job. You've taken your pills now and you've kept your $2. And by the way, you just hit a streak of 20 in a row. Here's high fives from your grandson. Um, this short video plays to reinforce the extrinsic with the intrinsic, actually have them work together and reinforce each other as opposed to crowd each other out or oppose each other. Yeah. Uh, so that's one of the biggest areas of work we're doing now is how do you take these more intrinsic, uh, you know, motivational interviewing type techniques and use those to reinforce the extrinsic rewards of the money. 
Yeah, I saw a recent research study that was looking at, so DC and Ryan were some of the ones that were talking about that crowding out component and the other whole self-determination theory and various different things. But there's been some really cool research lately, and we'll put it in the show notes. I can't remember it off, off top of hand. That was talking about when you look at that, they were saying that, hey, yeah, in the short term, all of that research is looking at that, and that's what they measured. They But they didn't measure actual long-term, you know, uh, extrinsic uh, rewards, you know, crowding out long-term intrinsic motivation. In the short term, they say, yeah, there's, there's, there's looks like that. But if you look at all the long-term studies on it, it goes back up to equal or above in some of those cases. And so uh, it's, a, it's one of those things that I think has been one of the big myths that is out there. Um, and, and, you know, DC and Ryan did a, some really good work, but there's also Eisenberg and Cameron and others who have done some really... Teresa Mobley is... Teresa Mobley and yeah. some of those others who have looked at a variety of other, you know, ways of actually either doing the, the extrinsic reward or looking at how it gets, you know... Um, operationalized within the the studies. And so it's not as, I think, prevalent as it could be or, or as what people think it is. So with that, that was a whole little diatribe down into the into the, some <laughs> the science side of things. Uh, but you had a question, too. Well, I, I do. I'm, um, you know, we've, uh, when I think about, you, you're leveraging the endowment effect by giving someone $180 right up front. Uh, but then you could claw it back at $2 a, a time if, uh, when they don't comply. So your, your number of 90 plus percent compliance, is that with 100% compliance over that three month period? Uh, or is that just, is that, is that at some level? I mean, I mean, I have a, I have a medication that I take on a daily basis and, and I'm, I'm probably good 89 out of 90 days. Um, so how does that work? Well, you're not our target user there. <laughs> <laughs> Apparently not. But uh, yeah, so basically what we do is, you know, kind of we frame the reward as here's the headline number. It's a big headline number. Um, Let's go back to kind of the Matt Loper, not at all science driven, kind of abstracted version (laughs) of of kind of how behavior change happens. Um, So uh, to answer the question first, and then I'll go back to kind of my theory. what we do is we, we use the headline number, the 180 bucks to get them to be excited and to enroll in the program. The actual structure of the program is it's $30 a month for those six months. Uh, and every 30 days they get, they get an actual physical, physical reloadable card rewards card that every 30 days, we, whatever is the earned balance on those 30 days. So they miss one check-in, um, you know, they get 28 bucks, hits that card on, on day 30, and they can go and use it at the grocery store or wherever they want to use it. Uh, so so basically, the, the devil's in the details, right? What we're trying to do is we're trying to frame the incentive as this big, exciting, sexy thing, um, but then use that excitement and that motivation and that momentum to get them onboarded, to get them into the program, then start to show them more of the details and then break it down into small individual components on a daily basis and make each interaction, each you know, tiny habit, so to speak, as bite-sized as possible. So um, over the course of that, yeah, that program, you're getting cashed out at the end of the month. So it feels like it's your money. You see the credit in the app, but you can't actually spend it until every 30 days. And every 30 days, you're getting a new $30 bounce. Um, so back to my... Oh, let's, hear, let's hear your theory here. Yeah. Why? <laughs> So, you know, I, I was a biological engineer um, 
hard scientist. My, my dad was a chemist. Um, I am used to hard sciences, right? So I try to always relate behavioral science back to things like chemistry. So uh, if you remember from like chemistry, whenever you last took chemistry and you had chemical reactions and there was this graph where it's like you, you put these two chemicals together and there's an activation energy required to get the chemical reaction to start. So you have to yeah. heat it up, right? And so you see the, the energy required goes up. But then once it starts, you start this process and it kicks off and then boom, it starts to go down more and more and more, right? So um, there's this, you know, activation energy required. And then once it starts going, it's kind of self-fulfilling, right? So my, I think there's a similar thing going on in behavior change. That first, just can I get this person to pay attention? And since we select for the portions of the population that are least adherent, least engaged, least trustful of the medical system our activation energy is actually way higher than if we were giving this to everyone and just saying, Hey, whoever wants it can sign up. Right. So we're only going after those who are not motivated or not engaged currently in the, in the medical system or in their own care. So there is some amount of money that is required to get you to pay attention. Right. And then once we get you on boarded and we show you, Hey, here's the benefit to you. Here's the process. It's actually really easy to do it's actually pretty enjoyable so that's another thing we find is um so why do we require the patients to take a picture every day because we need them to cross the intent behavior gap if we just said hey did you take your pills today and they they would say yes fully intending to take them later but you know they're in the middle of doing something their kids are screaming in the room next door and they're like oh i'll go take care of that other more pressing need right now come back and take my pills later they'll often not get to it right so put the picture of the pills in the hand snap a photo mainly was just the crossing type behavior gap. We don't need to watch them actually put them in their mouth and take them because most of these patients actually want to do the right thing. They just don't get around to it, right? So um, so that process that we created of taking that picture, initially we had no idea if that's what people wanted to do. Um, but over time, we've actually learned people love that. It's actually really fun and enjoyable. And it makes them more conscious of the behavior every time they do it because we've all done it, you know, whenever we're on medications, oh crap, did I take my pills? I forget. Like, I don't know if I took them or not because we're just going through life thinking about whatever we're thinking about and not actually conscious in the moment of taking pills. So back to my theory, um, the first activation energy is there's some headline number required to get the person to say, yes, I'm willing to do this thing, whatever it is. Then on a daily basis, the amount of motivation or the amount of re rewards required to get someone to do that behavior incrementally gets less and less and less. And eventually, our, my hope is we can get it to the point where it's almost zero extrinsic and mostly intrinsic. Because basically what happens is day one, basically uh, there's a subconscious rewards, uh, credit and debit analysis, you know, a, a, a cost benefit analysis. The immediate cost of taking your, your medications, um, we can quantify it or we can, we can name what they are, right? There's cognitive effort required to remember to take those pills. There's the emotional baggage. Every time you take your blood pressure or diabetes medications or whatever you may take, you're reminding yourself you have that disease state and that's actually a bad feeling. Um, there's perceived or real um, side effects from taking that medication. There's the financial cost of filling those prescriptions, right? So there are a number of things that are non-trivial, but not huge immediate costs of taking that medication versus the immediate benefit in most cases is almost zero. So if you think about the medication classes where we have an over-adherence problems, 
it's all the medication classes that give you really tangible and immediate, you know, feeling like uh, opiate or a stimulant. So over the course of time, those immediate costs start to go down more and more and more, right? So you have um, the, the emotional baggage starts to go to zero as you start to self-actualize. Yes, I have diabetes, but I'm doing something to get, take care of it. The cognitive effort goes down more and more and more as it becomes a habit. You don't even think about it. It's almost automatic. So by day 90, I think what's happening is you're producing enough immediate benefit from doing that interaction where the immediate costs have gone to almost zero. The immediate benefit is, wow, I actually like this thing. Yes, I'm getting rewarded, but I actually like this thing. And you start to bring in these intrinsic rewards, like I'm doing this a little bit longer, happier, healthier life to see my you know, daughter dance at her wedding or my grandchild graduate from high school. And you can actually have this very sustainable behavior change into the long term. And that's what we're starting to prove. And, and that's where I think the holy grail of all of these different, you know, research niches are coming together into one universal theory. So thank you. And I have two, one comment and then one question um, based on some of that information. So very cool stuff. So my first comment is, we had done, I had done uh, a component and listeners who have listened to the show for a long time have probably heard this before, but I was at a, a trade show and we had a bike that you pedaled and the faster and harder you pedaled, the more lights lit up, kind of like the ringing the bell kind of thing. And so we had this component of having that as a way to earn their t-shirt. Um, and so to get people on the bike, nobody would get on the bike. There were very few people that just got on the bike to try to get you know, the, the lights lit up, right? They, they, you know, but if you offered them a t-shirt, if you get on there, all you have to do is light one light up and you get a t-shirt. We had a whole lot of people, you know, signing up to do that. It was a cool t-shirt, you know, uh, behavior <laughs> yeah, matters t-shirt. Of course, of course. Of course um, cool. But with that, <laughs> once they got on, all they had to do was light up one light. That was all we had. That was all we said that they had to do. We had over a hundred people do it. Only one person stopped at one light. Once they got on, they kept going and they kept going. And, 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 you know, to get up to that green or the top bar, it was hard. I mean, they were, these guys are sweating and they were doing stuff and, you know, they're, they're trying and they're coming back. And so it was all this intrinsic motivation that kicked in. But your, your component about this activation energy, I thought was really kind of an interesting way of thinking about that. Because they required this activation energy to get on there. But once they got on, you know, then it became more of an intrinsic motivation with that. So I, you know, 100% agree kind of along that line. Second thing, and here's my question to you. So you, you set this up as this endowment effect and kind of as you talked about it, but in reality, it's a gain component. There, there, you, could, you could frame the conversation as every day you take your pills, you're earning $2, as opposed to every day you don't take your pills, you're losing $2. Did you consider doing it that way? And if so, why did or why didn't you do it that way? So I think when we started, so yes, our first version 1.0 of wealth, which was, you know, 2015 or so, we had a pilot with Cigna, uh, showed about a 60% improvement to um, medication adherence in, in diabetics we were just giving gain incentives. And if you look back to the research, you know, a lot of the, the seminal yep. research on the health side of behavioral economics has been done at University of Pennsylvania, uh, Kevin Volpe's group at, at 
Center for Health and Science and Behavioral Economics. So if you look at, you know, what a number of people started with in the, in the kind of health behavioral economics side is lottery incentives or gain incentives of some form. Exactly. Um, and those interventions, a lot of them were, were very, very successful. Um, you know, uh, our, one of our co-investigators in our study at UPenn is Steve Kimmel, um, works with Dr. Volpe, and him and Dr. Volpe showed they could get about a 10x reduction to the uh, non-adherence rate to warfarin with these, these lottery incentive programs, right? Um, took it from about 22% in the control group down to 2% in, in the intervention groups. What was really interesting is the um, $3 a day expected value lottery group almost performed exactly the same as the $5 a day expected value lottery group. So there was this leveling off once you get to enough incentive, there's no incremental benefits of paying more. Um, so that was interesting. So, the, you know, we started by looking at a lot of that research and that study was published in 2014, right around the time we were getting started. Uh, so we were doing gain incentives. We weren't doing lottery incentives for a number of reasons, but we were doing just small daily gains. Yep. Then we looked at kind of classic loss aversion studies, which were mostly done uh, using deposit contracts. So you could say, hey, if you want to participate in this, you have to put up your own 100 bucks. We're going to give it back to you plus a, a bonus if, if you hit the goal, right? So um, some of these studies showed huge efficacy in behavior change, but very low enrollment rates because only those who are really willing to bet on themselves, like I am definitely going to quit smoking and I'm putting my money up or, you know, at the time there's a company called Diet Bet. I don't know if they're still around where I'm definitely going to, you know, lose 10 pounds and I'm willing to bet on myself, Right. That's a very strong behavioral intervention, but only the, you know, the cream of the crop of people who are very motivated and, and very likely to hit that goal are going to sign up for that program. Especially when we look at Medicaid, you cannot possibly imagine asking people who, um, you know, are, are trying to just barely make ends meet, put up their own money, right? So our idea at the time was, is how do we leverage the daily motivation of loss aversion to supercharge the daily motivation of the reward, but frame it as a loss. So instead you put up your own money and we say, here's your money. Uh, but we're actually going to, it's, it, it, it's yours at the end of the month, as long as you keep doing the behavior and you don't lose it. Right. So what we started to see is, um, that was starting to have way bigger impact than our peer gain programs. Uh, and it's a very simple nuance, right? Because it's the same exact program. Um, same as that budget, but actually what we do is, is asymmetric loss framing, right? Because we say, here's $30 for the month, so it's a dollar a day of credit, but you're going to lose $2 if you miss only one of the, If you have five required check-ins in a given day, if you just miss one, you're losing all $2, right? So it's all or none, right? So it makes every interaction, every behavior so crucial. Um, so we started testing this stuff, and then Dr. Volpe's group, um, there's, there's a younger guy, um, really up-and-coming guy in Dr. Volpe's group, uh, I'm blanking on his name right now. His name's Matesh uh, Patel, I believe. Um, he put out a study who, and he was, he, he tested the exact same thing for people doing uh, step tracking in a month, right? So endow $1.40 a day of credit up front and then take it away if they take away the $1.40 if they don't hit their steps goal for the day versus just pay $42 uh, over the course of the month if you hit the steps goal every day. And he showed about a 30% better uh, adherence to steps goals in those who were given the loss framed incentive, right? So it was really cool where, you know, you have, you often see this in research, right? You have two people in different parts of the world, you know, coming to the same conclusion. conclusion. Yeah. 
coverage at the same time, even though they're not exactly talking to each other. So um, it was really cool that we were starting to do this in real life patient populations at the same time we, uh, uh, unknown to us, is, is the UPenn group was already testing this in a study and then published these results, you know, kind of concurrent to when we were doing this. So, uh, yeah, and I think another kind of Matt Loper theory of behavior change is um, this isn't hard science. It's not chemistry. You don't put these two chemicals together and get the same uh, results every time. You give the same exact uh, intervention to 100 different research groups, you'll get 100 different results um, because is like in startups, the idea is only worth so much. The execution of that idea, the implementation of that idea is what really matters. So, you know, I think that's that's a blessing and curse in our industry is where, you know, you have one study fail and it might be the intervention was crappy, but it might be the implementation of that intervention was crappy. And I see that way more often than the intervention was crappy. And so what happens is you you have people who just know enough to be dangerous about themselves to themselves about behavioral science, and they say, "Oh, this one study failed, therefore this thing just will never work." Right? And um, it's a very dangerous pop culture thing where like there's all these exciting stuff that just came out, and then everyone's like, you know, Michael Lewis wrote them doing project. Everyone's you know, in pop culture is like behavioral economics is awesome. Everyone's talking about behavioral economics, and then you'll see these headlines where it's like, "Oh, this one study failed." So therefore, this stuff doesn't work. But it's like, no, what about the thousands of studies that have been done that have already worked? So you talk about uh, implementation being the key. What is it about uh, the Wealth app that in the implementation that makes it successful? This is another thing that I spent a lot of time thinking about. And um, I think this stuff is so, um, the margin for error is so small, especially when you're dealing with the patient populations we deal with. If if you call someone and say the wrong thing, they're going to say, wait, you're going to pay me money? This is a scam and hang up the phone and they're never going to pick up the phone again, right? If you have any, even, it's, it's crazy. We do these beta testing uh, when we put out a new version of the app, right? We, we enroll, you know, just representative patients from the population that are not from our paid customers, just give away, literally give them free money to test our app and, and kind of find bugs. And you wouldn't be, like, I would never have guessed that the type of feedback we get when we say, clearly, this is beta, there's going to be bugs, your job has helped us find these bugs. The amount of frustration when they when they encounter a bug and they're like, you guys took away my $2 today and, you know, I did it and it's your app. And, like, you know, they just write these scathing <laughs> feedback and we're like, wait a second, let's, let's take one step back. We're giving you free money. <laughs> like, right, right. Oh, it's no longer free. You gave it to them. So now it's right. theirs, now it's the endowment mind. effect, right? There you go. I exactly. mean, it's, it's very real. Those are very well, real emotions. Toya Najahi at uh, City Block Health. I don't know. I don't know if you know her, but uh, you talk about yeah. companies, you know, I mean, she talks about the importance of really tailoring the message to her audience required uh, the people who were going out into the field to be versed in, um, in dealing with trauma victims because there's a lot of trauma that exists in those households, uh, especially, uh, you know, lower uh, income uh, families. And so uh, she's like, wow, we didn't realize that we had to train our employees in the field to deal with trauma victims, basically. So, uh, so you're, so I certainly get these nuances that you're having to talk about in the implementation made a huge difference. Uh, have you tracked all these? Are these the kinds of things that you could imagine amassing and saying, these are some of the best practices that, that go with, uh, with these interventions? Yeah. And I think that really, you know, if I think about 
where is the value we're creating, right? Like as in putting it on my investor hat, like what is the value we're creating? Um, I think a lot of investors are like, oh, well, couldn't someone just read all the research and just make the app the same way you guys did? And I was like, no, the value we're creating is each one of those kind of nuances can only be learned through experience. And you have to create these operational procedures to make sure that you do things the right way every single time. And if you go back to that user journey, it's every step of that user journey from the initial outreach to maximize the enrollment rates, the daily interaction through an app that's actually fun and easy to use to make sure people actually stick with the program, right? Um, uh, Another side note, I think a lot of what we're seeing now in a lot of these studies is um, the results back in 2014, 2015 were phenomenal using, you know, these very almost no user interaction, user interface, where it's just, I get a text message every day to do whatever. And then I get my reward through that same text message mechanism. And there's no real interface. And now today, the kind of user, the bar has been raised so much by companies like Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, who who understand and spend billions of dollars on on user interactions uh, and, and user experience research. So like, I think the, you take the same intervention in terms of just the rewards that worked really well back in 2014. And if you don't have a interface that can compete for attention, like Twitter and Facebook and Instagram, you're not going to get good results today. Right? So every single day that interaction has to be perfect. The fulfillment, the operations, the customer service has to be perfect. Everything has to be perfect. And you have to have this, this, um, this real, you know, great organization that can, execute at each one of those steps in order to get these results. So one of the things that we started to measure is uh, if you look at our results over different populations, and I don't know if I share this with you, but there's this chart, this beautiful chart that's our universal chart that shows every single patient we have enrolled and each column is a different customer population. And you look across the board, ranging from um, Medicaid to Medicare to commercial, ranging from you know, 40 year olds to 95 year olds ranging from uh, just one chronic condition and one behavior per day to up to five different behaviors per day because they have so many comorbidities ranging to serious mental illness and, and, um, you know, kind of schizophrenia and across the board, all these populations of distributions of adherence look almost exactly the same. And they're very tightly coupled between about 85% and 92%. Wow. Um, so what's that starting to show is that we've started to nail and, and going back to my statement, it was like, what is the value we're creating? Is it necessarily um, just the app? Is it just the, the instead of intervention? It's actually the, the combination effect of everything we do. And I'll just show you real quickly on the screen share, this slide, because it is so powerful. So this is a bit of an older version. It's, there's a lot more dots now, but uh, just real quickly, you can see each one of these columns these are different patient populations. The darker the dot, the more care plan behaviors were required of those patients per day. And the y-axis here is the percent adherence. And this line is 80% or better. Wow. So you can take people who are previously non-adherent, people that have, you know, in these very dark dot examples, five care plan behaviors required per day and get the vast, vast majority of them to be over 80% compliant over different lengths of time, right? So these people now two years in the program, still 90% adherent versus these people just did a 90 day post discharge program from a hospital. So um, it's a really cool thing where you're seeing the repeatability of this intervention 
in very, very diverse populations. And it's all coming out almost exactly the same. Matt, if, if we can share this with our listeners, we'd love to put it up in the show notes and have it for them. So if that's okay, then we'll, we'll make sure that they can see this because it really is impressive. So you, uh, I want to switch gears. You talked about, yeah, you've had some fun observations uh, over, over the years of things that you've seen. Uh, could you share some kind of interesting things uh, from a behavioral science perspective that maybe caught you off guard? Yeah, and I think, um, you know, the data, the results, like the things that you think when you're starting a company that are going to really be the things that get you excited, you know, raising venture capital, like building a team, like all those things are, are great. Um, but by far the most rewarding things that I've experienced is the personal anecdotes we get back from users. Um, here's an example. Uh, remember towards the start of the year around January. So um, our, our president, no, no, no commentary on. <laughs> but That's perfectly you're, okay. You're totally fine. We'll, we'll go there. Uh, for some reason we decided to shut down the government for a while. Um, and so we had a user, uh, she's in Trenton, New Jersey, uh, mother of three Medicaid eligible individual that we serve. Um, she calls our helpline and she's crying. And our, um, one of our great member specialists picks up the phone and is, is really worried. He's like, is everything okay? Um, you know, is this emergency? She's like, no, 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 no. I just wanted to call and say, thank you. Um, I haven't been able to get my government benefits for the last two weeks because the government's been shut down. And I had to go and buy groceries for my family last night at the grocery store with the wealth rewards card. And you guys were the ones that fed my family uh, this week. And that was just so cool because it's like a relatively, you know, we're in such a bubble and we think that, you know, $30 a month sounds like nothing, but, um, to some of these families, it's actually in those times of need, it's a life-changing amount of money. And, uh, you know, there's so many other patient success stories in terms of their health benefit, right? But that one just really stuck with me because it's like, this is a systemic problem in our country. And yes, we're not the magic bullet that's going to solve all those, but we were there for her when, uh, when she really needed it. And that was, that was a really cool thing. That's terrific. Is very cool. That's terrific. That's a that's a great story. We we the, you're not a nonprofit, but you just had a very socially forward observation that is uh, very cool, and we're really grateful that you shared that with us. Yeah, thank you. Um, I uh, go ahead, Kurt. No, I was looking at you because okay, I because feel the 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 music coming <laughs> up. I can tell when you want to get to music. I just have this. Well, we've been I, doing this long enough now that we, we have this we have. almost. But I'm gonna I'm gonna hold off on music for just a second because oh I gosh. did because you uh, you did talk uh, early on, uh, Matt, after you got funding about how Amazon is very. Um, is very much into customization. And you, you were just a moment ago relating to how uh, lots of organizations like Twitter and Facebook, they've raised the bar. And, and as consumers, just when one organization, a multi-billion dollar organization raises the bar, the expectation is that everybody should do that. Even if you're a 20 person company that's based on the coasts, uh, is, which is kind of insane, but, we, but consumers have that expectation that everybody, every company, every app, uh, should be able to do what the biggest companies do. Uh, so, but you talked about specialization and you talked about customization. I was wondering what you're doing 
as you're looking forward to continue to increase the customization or the, or the specialization of, of the app? What, what's next? Yeah, so our dream um, is to create what we call mass personalization, where every single new user that comes onto the app has a program that's personalized to them based on their own disease states, their own geography, their psychographic group, their socioeconomic group, their what support they have based on their family. Everything is tailored to them um, in down to you know the, the language that we use in every trigger, the way we reinforce the incentive, even maybe down to the incentive amount and incentive structure based on that individual and who they are. Um, that is our big dream. If you think about those big companies, right? Um, historically, you know, I'm a, I'm a business geek by nature. I, if you think about, you know, the, the the big monopolies of you know the Rockefeller era, they owned the whole supply system, right? They they had these huge economies of scale where they were able to purchase raw goods at way cheaper prices than anyone else could, and manufacture it into a finished product at way higher prices or way lower prices than anyone else could, and then sell it way higher prices than anyone else could because they cornered the market, right? So that's historically how we created monopolies was creating, you know, these, these economies of scale. If you look at today's disruptors or monopolies, right, the Googles, the Facebooks, the Amazons, and if you look at their competitive moat, um, it's all around the data that they have, right? So it's a very simple ask, Amazon example, right? Go back to early 2000s, right? You have walmart.com versus Amazon. Everyone in their right mind would have bet on walmart.com because they had already economies of scale. They already had inventory. They already have supply chain. They already had everything. Why did Amazon win? Well, because Jeff Bezos realized really early on, we have to know our consumer better than anyone else possibly can. Our competitive moat is going to be that we know when you run out of dog food before you do, and we sell you the dog food at the exact second you need it. Um, so they gathered a terabyte of data on behavioral data on every single prime member and every single prime member had an individualized experience in that product. Right? So we think about the same exact thing as we look to create a huge company is to create these data modes on each different segment of the market, each different individual user of our app and maximize the ultimate improvement to morbidity or mortality for that user based on their individual needs, individual behaviors. Uh, and then, you know, if we really get there, that's an extremely valuable company, right? Because anyone that has risk on that morbidity or mortality, namely health insurers, healthcare providers who have risk, life insurers, very, very much cares about being able to impact that risk, right? So um, that's our long-term vision. And, uh, you know, you mentioned a little bit about how the bar gets raised. I think it's actually a great thing. I think if you look at just what Apple did, right? It used to be where, you know, I used to build PCs in the 90s and they were the ugliest color. <laughs> like, this weird beige color, like you look inside of them and all the cables went in all directions and it was just ugly. And then you look at our devices that we're using today, they're all beautifully designed. Um, they're simple, they're, 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 they function, they have to function perfectly, right? So the, the, the bar of one, person like Steve Jobs just coming in and saying, no, we're going to build stuff, design stuff that actually looks beautiful and works and is simple. That's raised the bar for everyone else. And that just accelerates innovation, right? So I think um, 
there's an evolution to, to kind of consumer technologies and it's a great thing. And yes, as a startup, you have to be able to, with a small team, compete with these big companies that have um, huge engineering and design teams, but uh, it's a fun challenge. And I think the good news is in our space and healthcare specifically, we couldn't create a, a Facebook competitor or an Amazon competitor, but in our space, the field is wide open and actually not competing with those guys. We're competing with them in terms of user interactions, but by taking what they've done and creating these user-centric design principles and integrating them into healthcare, um, we're actually competing with the traditional healthcare delivery system, which has zero attention being spent on user-centric design and user interactions and user experience. So um, by just taking what others have done in other industries and bringing those principles to healthcare, actually the, it, it provides us a huge competitive advantage. Well, Matt, do you have any... So as you as you're talking about this, you know, obviously with Amazon and and Facebook and different things, there's been a number of ethical considerations about the data that they're collecting and some privacy components around that. So obviously forward thinking, you know, what are your thoughts on that for you and how you guys are going to be handling those situations and what what are those big concerns for you as you think through moving forward? Yep, this is an ethos we had from the very beginning, which is one. Our, we will never share your personal health information with anyone other than you and the client we're serving who already has it, which is your payer provider, right? Your health insurance company or your, your hospital slash doctor. So we'll never sell your party to your, your data to a third party. We have extreme security measures to make sure that it never gets exposed to anyone who shouldn't. Um, and, you know, spend a big, big part of our, budget just making sure everything is secure and and there's no data breaches right so that's first and foremost number one ethos number two is um in our core values uh our number one core value as a company is um our member is our mission right in Mm -hmm. other words treat every single user of our our technology and program like it's your own mother or grandmother and always put them first right so we created this set of core values to make, help guide every um, employee of our company, whether it's the member support specialist that's picking up the phone to take these, you know, these questions or, or situations, or it's the engineer that's designing the next version of the app. Always make sure we're putting the user first. We're not putting our customer first. We're not acting you know, perversely in the self-interest of the insurance company. We're not... Um, creating a program that could discriminate based on, um, you know, potentially making healthcare more expensive or life insurance more expensive. We only want to provide programs that can share the value of the value creation that we create, right? So if you think about our business, it's actually extremely simple. Some amount of money has to go in to get the behavior to improve. And there has to be ROI on the back end in terms of lower cost of, of healthcare coverage or lower cost of um, life insurance, right? So all of these cases, um, you know, I think one of the big kind of doomsday kind of predictions in, in this field is that, oh, we're going to get these, these programs that, you know, price discriminate based on different individuals. We're actually doing the opposite. We're only going to people who are high risk. We're only creating lower risk and therefore sharing back that value of that lower risk with the consumer from whoever holds the risk on, on that outcome. Who funds the $180? Yep. So it's whoever bears the risk on that outcome, right? So for someone who just had a heart attack, about 25% of those people will have another heart attack within those 90 days. Um, Historically, that's been the insurance company, right? This person has another heart attack. 
they go back to the hospital. That's sixteen thousand dollars that you know is costing the insurance company to pay for that that hospitalization. What's going on right now is we have this huge paradigm shift where the hospitals, the healthcare providers, in many cases, are starting to take that risk from the insurance company in terms of those outcomes. So now, if patient comes in with a heart attack, they discharge the patient, they come back with another heart attack, boom, that's $16,000 out of the hospital's pocket. Right. So our that's... customers, no, go ahead. Our customers are, bo- are both, right? Either the hospital that bears that risk or the health insurance company that still bears the risk on the overall outcome for that first, that first heart attack that happens and, and, and or hasn't started to bear the, or give the risk to the, the healthcare provider yet. So, um, in all cases, we so for example, in that exact example, we've shown about a forty-five percent decrease to the readmissions that happen after that initial heart attack within those ninety days. So, if you just do the math, the one hundred eighty bucks is a tiny drop in the bucket versus the expected savings of running our program, right? So, all of our um, and this is why it took us a little bit longer to get started is because what we have to pitch the customer, whether it's the hospital or the health insurers, no, trust us, just pay this little money on money up front. You're going to get four to five times that amount of money back from the cost savings that are generated. So it's a hard proposition to sell as a unproven startup that doesn't have results. But the great thing is in every single one of our implementations, the results have been better than expected. So now we're starting to reach this tipping point where we go into these, these new sales and we're like, hey, here's the math. Here's the data that shows it works. All you have to do is believe it. And in some cases, we're even deferring our fees until the result is actually measured, right? So we are actually, in some cases, going at risk for those better results. And therefore, we make more money when those results are, are, are hit. Great. Love that. Now, can I talk about music? Now you can talk about music, Jim. <laughs> now. You happen to mention that Jim Morrison wouldn't really survive in the Me Too movement. Uh, but who might? Is there somebody that you can think of in, in the classic rock era that you think, well, maybe they would survive in the Me Too? <laughs> <laughs> or is that um, is that just an unanswerable question? Sex rock. What was it? Rock, it was was it sex, sex drugs, drugs and, and rock and roll. roll. Yeah. I, mean, I don't know if that, that ethos really makes it through to, to survive. <laughs> I, I, I agree. I think that um, the, the rock and roll ethos was was just really um, misaligned with kind of the social movements of today. But um, I guess I'll tell you, I, I, when I, I moved back from New York after 10 years in New York to California, and my, my parents still live here. Um, so I went home and my parents live, you know, about 45 minutes south of Los Angeles where I live. And I was like, holy crap, my mom still has her original um, from the 70s, uh, vinyl collection and uh turntable and it still works the turntable the whole sound system the amplifier the 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 um the speakers still work and basically they were um right after um you know i'm too young to actually know this but you know the transistors transistors in the amplifiers used to be you know analog and like these these light bulb type things and then it switched to solid state right she was she bought the first wave of solid state amplifiers and um it was a japanese made brand and this is when we still had tariffs against japan after world war ii so this is like uh my my uncle was in the korean war he had to go and buy it in on his way back uh in germany and bring it back with him right 
Wow. So that is, that is talk about an effort put into getting some good sound. I, <laughs> I, I have a fondness for your parents right now. That's pretty terrific. Well, you know, and it was sitting in the garage and hadn't been touched in 20 years, but I, I fired it up at work. I'm like, mom, I'm taking this. She's like, okay, go ahead. I, I don't even, I didn't even remember I had it. So she still had her final collection also as well. And it turns out my parents were actually cool. You would never think my parents were cool, <laughs> but they actually had a good taste. So she had, uh, to answer your question, she had uh, original Fleetwood Mac album, um, Rumors. And who would be today's shining star? I think Stevie Nicks would be like the, you know, the it girl today. And she would own social media. Uh, and that's one of my favorite albums. And I play it like on a weekly basis on my, uh, you know, I play the original one. But my, what surprised me the most, so my mom had a ton of Simon Garfunkel, which I knew she was a huge Simon Garfunkel fan. Uh, but she actually, you know, I'm actually a huge stand-up comedian and I never heard my mom curse my whole life until I was like, maybe in my twenties, she had like original Richard Pryor, like comedy. <laughs> and it's like, I cannot imagine my mom sitting around listening to Richard Pryor, but I guess she did back in you know, <laughs> some point in the seventies. Yeah. And, and we'll put a link on in the show notes, but Richard Pryor didn't hold back on anything. Yeah. <laughs> there was, there was no topic, no terminology that was off, off limits to Richard Pryor. Holy yeah. smokes. That that's great. And I couldn't agree more. Fleetwood Mac, uh, Stevie Nicks, especially you think about all the songs that she wrote were really uh, empowering a- around women, not, uh, you know, not I'm the victim, but they were really about, you know, I'm a strong person and I've got something to say. And I think that that that's, that's pretty cool. What, what's on your playlist these days? Um, so I like, I like a good mix of kind of, I guess what Spotify recently suggested to me was uh, their playlist, Modern Psychedelia. And so um, there's a band called Glass Animals, which I've never seen in person, but it's pretty good. Uh, there's a band called Alabama Shakes. Yeah. Um, oh. Another great female lead. Uh, they're one of my favorite bands. Um, I like the more kind of um, esoteric type, type of, I guess, hip hop or rap. Uh, so like Childish Gambino, um, Kendrick Lamar, Kid yeah. Cudi. Um, so yeah, that's, that's kind of, if you look at, so I have in my record album or my, my, my album collection, I have all this stuff that my mom had, right? The classic stuff. And I've, I've supplemented a little bit with some you know, stuff she didn't have, like Led Zeppelin and the Doors. But then I also have, um, I think every two years, there's an album that comes out and I just listen to it on repeat. Um, and for for about two years and then the next one comes out so you know that's been like the black keys alabama shakes childish gambino kendrick lamar uh kid cutty so those are the, the more recent one and um there's a actually all-girl band called heim who i love uh i've seen them live a few times they're they're pretty cool yeah i'm a big fan of dan auerbach and the black keys i think is, ter- is terrific and of course alabama shakes man i mean talk about some really great chops those guys have got a great sound from really from, from the basics that that's really cool. Matt. So if there were, um, so as we wrap this up, we always ask our guests or we, we, we don't always, but we try, we try to ask, our guests, try, yeah. you know, so from your experience and everything you do and granted, you know, number one recommendation obviously is to get your app if you can, but for people to, to stay adherent to drugs that they're doing, obviously Tim is 89 out of 90, 
You know, I'm 90 out of 90 on mine. Oh, I've, I've established right, a nice right. habit. I mark it off on my calendar every day. Well so done. there you go. Well but what would you, what would you suggest? What are some, what are some tips from you that one or two things that you think people can do? Uh, doesn't have to be on, on, uh, you know, drug adherence, uh, that, but just like, how do you, how do you establish a habit and keep it? Yep. So I think I actually use a lot of these techniques I've learned over the course of time through learning about this stuff on myself. Um, yeah, you said you kind of do a biohack on yourself all this time. So, yeah. So I, uh, every quarter I set a new set of goals for myself and, you know, a lot of those are business related, but several of them are, are personal. Right. Um, and what I do is I write down clearly what those goals are. So for example, um, I want to lose 10 pounds, right? I write down why I want to do that, right? What are the, what are, what is this achieving this goal? What is it going to give me? Right. And it's like, well, I'm actually going to be able to surf, float on my surfboard and catch waves as opposed to just sink and not catch it. <laughs> um, maybe I'll be a little bit more attractive and actually be able to get a girlfriend. Um, you know, those sorts of things. <laughs> then you break down that big goal of, you know, I want to lose 10 pounds by this date into individual three individual progress goals that are more trackable and quantifiable on kind of a weekly basis. Right. So um, for example, I'm going to go low carb for, you know, for two weeks at a time, I'm going to work out five times a week, whatever it is, you set the progress goals to the, that tie up to the individual or to the, the big high level goal. And then you break down those progress goals into individual daily tasks. And then you track the progress towards those tasks. So every week I set out, okay, I'm on the road Thursday and Friday this week. I'm going up to San Francisco and Silicon Valley. So that means I have to, I have to do three workouts Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, or else I'm not going to hit my weekly goal. And when I'm in, you know, I'm seeing some friends up in San Francisco I can't go out and, you know, eat a burger and French fries and milkshake and, you know, have three beers afterwards with them. I have to, you know, you know, set my, my macronutrients for the day and hit those macronutrients. So um, what I think it is, you know, if I had to summarize is set the intention, set the goal, really understand what's motivating you to hit that goal, then break that big goal into little bite-sized pieces that you can actually track on down to the daily basis and, and kind of see your progress towards those intermediate goals to get to the big goal. Very cool. Perfect. Thank you. Perfect. Thanks so much, Matt. Matt, it has been wonderful having you on Behavioral Grooves. Thank you so much and good luck with, with wealth. Everything sounds fantastic. Thanks for having me. Welcome to our grooving session where Tim and I groove on what we learned from our Behavioral Grooves interview free-flowing discussion on some of those topics and whatever else comes into our chemically charged brains. Chemically charged? Matt talked about it's not chemistry, right? But our brains are actually... Chemistry. Chemistry, right? There's the nerve... Actually, it's not really chemistry. So... I guess I don't know. Maybe maybe behavior is really just all chemistry. It isn't though. It is not. I mean, think about our our brains are actually uh, they have the electronic component in it. They have the all of the neurotransmitters in there. That's not chemistry, is it? 
I'm not. So, I'm, I guess I'm not a chemist, so I couldn't really no, tell you the difference between no. chemistry and physics. Right? We need a neuroscientist on the on here to talk about the difference between the electrical components of the brain and the chemistry components of the brain. I think that would be a good. We need to do that. There we go. Yeah, definitely. So well, we're here to talk about Matt. We're here to talk about Matt. But w- this is a an interesting grooving session for us because yeah, it is because yeah. you are. I'm in the city, as they say. I'm in New York City right now. And I am in my office in Minneapolis, Minnesota. And so we've never done a remote grooving session. So let's hope this works. God, I mean, it's possible that just the wheels could just fly off at any moment. Yeah, it, it, you should, listeners should just listen to see when the wheels fly off when we're here, because it's going to just crash and burn. Kaboom! Yeah, it's going to happen. <laughs> all right, all right. Well, well, well okay. you know. I'm glad you're in New York and not here in yeah. ninety degree weather. So well, it's it's warm here in New York, but it is it is pretty great. You know, I mean, it is a great place to visit. And I've been spending a lot of time with people who live here, and they wouldn't trade New York City for anything. I like know, they isn't just that crazy. It, it well, I, I guess I kind of get it, but on a level, I also don't get it because. I don't know. I grew up in flyover land, right. so it's just hard to hard to kind of get into that. Well, but, okay. So we'll digress here because that's is what we do. Um, I was just in conversation with um, some people the other day, and we were talking about Minnesota. And one of the factors in Minnesota is that we have the the highest rate of people who um, were born here and die here as a percentage. So there's this component yeah. of people who are moving into, um, you know, who, who are born here and then they move away and then they, they, they always come back. But the, that one I knew from a long time ago. But the interesting part is that there's a whole component on real commercial real estate, which I'm not going to get into you, and, and why the Twin Cities has such a high predominance of Fortune 500 headquarters. And one of the components of that is they're saying once people move here they don't move away i mean the the percentage of people moving in denver seattle phoenix all have a larger um, component of people moving into those those cities right but they also have a larger percentage of exodus so we have a slower trickle of people coming in to move into minneapolis st paul but then the exit rate from minneapolis st paul is much less so there we go. Yeah, well, I think it is interesting, actually. And uh, I, I learned today or yesterday that a third of the people who were living in New York City were not born in the United States. Wow. So, so that is a really diverse population. And I love that. It you know, is, I yeah. am. I'm super drawn to this idea of living in a world where, guess what? I mean, we we humans, we are all about moving around. We have spent the last 100,000 years, you know, moving from place to place, integrating with other groups. And this is sort of the modern equivalent of some really serious migration stuff going on. I love it. Yeah, it's that uh, mixing pot, as as, as they they like to call it. Melting Melting pot. Melting, Yeah. yeah. Mixing, yeah, melting. You know, I'd, I'd rather mix than melt. All right, let's 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 talk, let's talk Matt. about Matt. Yeah, let's talk about Matt. So, uh, Kurt, what uh, what do you think we should talk about today? Well, I think there's a couple things that I would love to talk about. So, I'd love to talk about the use of the endowment effect or loss aversion in the way that that they've set this up, and I thought that was fascinating. And we have had a couple other conversations about that, and I think we can really dig down into there. And then I really want to get into 
this component of um, how Matt is wanting to move people off of the extrinsic reward and get them to be doing this from a habitual component. And so right. how does that play out from a, uh, extrinsic motivation, you know, there's literature out there that says it decreases intrinsic motivation and that's a whole area. Um, but then there's some recent research that doesn't. So let's, let's, uh, start on that. You want to talk about endowment effect? I do. I also, uh, it, it, it's tied into this for me is the clawback incentive stuff. We've had some recent discussions on clawback incentives, but, yeah. um, but this idea of starting every month with a, a balance, actually starting the whole program with a big balance and saying, here's $180 is a big, you know, it's a big deal. It's like, oh, this is a, it's the headline. It's the big promotional story. And I think it's a great tool to get people invested. You know, this is why people get into lotteries because of big numbers. I know that these are crazy different sizes right but but that's why we we get in is when there's a bigger number involved so it's a great way to start and i think that that's that's a really clever way of approaching this program to engage the participants first and foremost right and i love how they're actually using this component right when they started they did not have this endowment effect the loss aversion component within it they actually had it as a gain every day you get you earn a dollar for showing us the picture but the fact of the matter, once he started to read into some of the research, so again, to a degree, he's an accidental behavioral scientist in this, but he's looking into that and he goes, wow, can we use this research? And then they, they tested it out. And it seems to me that they are having a really positive impact where they're um, at this component where, yes, every day basically earns a, a dollar, right? If you looked at it, you get $30 per month. And, and granted, how they have that shown up is, is that you get that $30 at the beginning, but you, it doesn't actually deposit it into your account until the end of the month. But for every day you miss, you lose $2. And so that endowment effect kicks in because, no, that's mine. I want it. That, that, I'm, I'm not giving that up. Right, that pain of losing that two dollars is is really hard. So it has that clawback effect. Well, the loss of vision, my mind's conversion. Oh, losing always feels worse than the game. It's just a loss of vision, a strange conversion from a little loss into a bigger pain. Yeah, and I think that uh, I, I got to get back to Matt's idea that behavior is way more complex than chemistry or the hard sciences. And economists have really led us down sort of the wrong path, believing that we ought to be rational, that we ought to be rational agents, and that the um, the whole idea of the, the progressive and positive reward on a daily basis should be the right thing. I, I think that we're kind of mucked up uh, in, in this idea that we, we ought to be that way when in fact we're just not. You know, I, I, the, the fact that we just respond so much better to having this clawback in this particular environment, in this situation, and that Matt's data proves it out, says, you know, we can get rid of the economic models, you know, uh, along these lines. They just don't apply to every situation. So just, I would I would be hesitant to say, let's just throw out all of the economic well, models. Well, I, not, I, not for everything. But in this situation, Matt has proved what works and what doesn't and what which is more effective well and i think th so here's here's my component here's how i think about this 
when we are dealing with people, we are, as you said, we're not, we're not just a robot, as we've said. You can't just plug and play us. There are a number of different factors that come into play. That being said, what I loved about Matt is that he was, he's open to looking at the research to say, how do we take what some of these research findings are implying and how do we potentially use those to increase the desired outcome of what we're trying to do. And that testing and experimenting worked in this situation. To that degree, the gain one worked as well. Um, and so that it just wasn't as effective, though. I mean, it was not nearly as effective it as, wasn't, the, as it the clawback. Didn't, it, didn't, it didn't work as good, but it still worked. So that model still works. It just, this model works better. So In this situation. In this situation. And again, we keep going back to that because we talked with Charlotte Blank or heard Charlotte Blank talk about, you know, a larger study where a clawback did not work. Right. And that was a huge clawback that that was you're talking hundreds of thousands of dollars if not more um tens of thousands to hundreds of thousands of dollars and i think there is a a difference in scale a difference also in the audience that you're dealing with and a number of other factors so that in that environment the clawback incentive did not work right well and i say bring it on let's let's look at all of the complexities and all of the variations that go into making up these contexts and these circumstances and these environments different that's great i i just don't want to um i don't i don't want to be living my life believing that the economists have a general supremacy on good ideas and that, and that we ought to behave in a particular way when human behavior is much more complex and much more contextually um, influenced. Uh, okay, so that's my rant. Uh, so, so I think you're taking in some of this New York attitude. You, you, are, you are feisty today. You are feisty. Is this where the wheels start coming off? Are you going to start like, you know, forget about it, Kurt. I'm not working with you anymore. <laughs> no, I'm not going there. No, 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 no. Wow, don't, that was some wild, weird, weird feedback, too, when I yelled. <laughs> All right. Uh, but I, okay. I, agree well, okay. With you, I agree with you 100% on the nuances that we need to take into account. And, and so from that perspective, I think one of the insights that I got from this is to say, hey, Let's be more open to looking at non-traditional ways of rewarding people. And in particular, and I think what, what I'm actually fascinated with with this one, because of this clawback component, is because it was relatively small, right? And if you think about this, this is $2 back, you know, a dollar back. And, and a lot of times on those smaller incentives, those smaller kind of recognition components, recognition probably is not the right term here, but the smaller incentive programs, does this work more, uh, does it have a larger impact than, say, a typical gain one? And so I would love to be, you know, talk with people about that and to run some experiments to see if this this has some legs beyond just this wealth app. So, yeah, yeah, definitely. Uh, along those lines, I, I, I think that it, it's worth talking about the clawback incentives also in the world of business, as Charlotte Blank has has uh, has mentioned in in our discussions before about how there has been 
negative consequences from using a, using a clawback. And when I think about my own experience with sales managers and the number of programs designed uh, for uh, positive reinforcement incentive programs, boy, it's just really, really hard to get a sales manager to even think about a clawback because of, a, of the cultural side of it. Um, if nothing else, there's a, there's a cultural aspect to uh, avoiding clawbacks. And, uh, and part of what might make this work for Matt is that there isn't a history of this is how we do incentives. Uh, so to get you to take your medicine, there isn't a, a long uh, sort of standard of this is what we expect. Hey, every day you're going to get every day I take my pill, I'm going to get a buck. That, there's not that long standing tradition. Yeah. I, I think the other part from a sales component is you talk about this culture and this history. I think there's also this component of who I am as a, a leader and what type of leader do I want to be? Do I want to be that leader that is really seen as punishing? Because that's what clawbacks seem like. They seem like they're punishing you, right? It's the you're grounded component, <laughs> right? Right. right. You, you kind of to that degree. And, and do you yeah. want to be that leader? And I think a lot of people don't want that, right? There, there's some negative connotations that go along with that. And thus you're ending up, you know, not having people even want to try. So, yeah, yeah, definitely. All right. Let's let's get into uh, are my my component here of extrinsic motivation uh, and then trying to wean people off of that and is it possible? And so this is part with it that Matt was talking about. They want to move people ultimately off of the app and build these habits. And I think that's commendable. And I think there is something to getting people to do things over and over and over again. And it does become habitual, right? Go back to Skinner. Go back to any of your, uh, you know, behaviorists that have, you know, looked at this in animals and people for the past 120 some odd years now. And we know that some of that works. Yeah. Um, the hard part is, is that, you know, are we also habituating people to getting the award as, as, as a reason for doing this? And this gets into that extrinsic motivation. Um, and DC and Ryan have talked from you know the mid 70s onwards about how extrinsic motivation decreases subsequent intrinsic motivation, and I just have a hard time with that just um, from my experience within the world and different things. But also, there has been lots of research out there um, subsequent to that that says, hey. Yeah, in some situations and in specific contexts, that's probably true. But you're not looking at the larger picture. And that larger picture says, hey, how you structure that incentive matters to whether or not that extrinsic motivation actually decreases the, the intrinsic motivation subsequently. And looking at the length of time that the, uh, that, that motivation is subsequently decreased. And we have uh, historically probably taken too short of a measure of that and not looked over a long-term component. Well, right, and a lot, of, a lot Yeah, well, and so many of these uh, of these test environments use the the simplest form of piecemeal style reward, right? It's it's do this and get that. 
in, 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 in typically kind of a piecemeal fashion, which is uh, sort of the blunt instrument, um, the, the bluntest instrument in the world of incentives. There are many, many other ways to, to develop incentives, to write rules uh, to, to get people uh, you know, to, to change behavior than just this very simple piecemeal thing. There's a whole variety of things around um, you know, rewarding progress and having tiers, setting individual goals. Uh, you know, there's a whole bunch of things that can be done rather than using this very blunt and simplistic element of, of just a do this, get that. Right. Um, well, Eisenberger and Cameron talked about that. And so that was um, uh, some really good research that was done late 80s, 90s, uh, even some of the early 2000s, is looking at how those incentives are structured. And are they structured such a way that they actually um, are... So DC and Ryan are talking about, you know, when you do that extrinsic motivation, basically in our brain, what we're doing is saying, hey, I am doing this... Um, whatever it is, if I'm putting these blocks together, figuring out these anagrams, whatever that would be, I'm doing it because of the reward, right? And and thus, I must not really like doing it. That's the theory kind of behind what they're saying. Well, and, and that ultimately extrinsic uh, motivation sort of crowds out intrinsic motivation. And it crowds it out, right? So yeah. yeah, because that's exactly, it's like, oh, I'm doing this because I'm, I'm getting paid for it, not because I like it. So that crowds out this this intrinsic motivation. What, so necessarily, when I stop getting the reward, then I'm not going to have any intrinsic motivation to keep me going at it, so I'll just stop doing it or do it at a, at a lesser level. What Cameron and Eisenberger have talked about and some other researchers that are out there that, that are looking at this is that if you structure the incentive so that the incentive is actually more of a indication of how well you're performing on it, in other words, if you're setting goals and, and do I achieve the goal or not achieve the goal, um, you know, tiers, various different components to say, hey, I am doing this and I am, I am doing this at a level that obviously shows mastery and various different components of it. Then what that, again, then our brain processes that differently. What our brain does is says, oh, I'm getting rewarded for my improvement on this. I'm getting rewarded for how good I am at this. And it, it doesn't have that component of saying, I'm just doing it for this. It's, it's a reflection of my performance and my mastery as opposed to this component of not doing it. So I thought that was, that was really interesting. And then I know, and, and, and we'll find this and put it in the show notes, Tim, but I can't remember. I, I did read a recent article it, that talked about the, the time length of looking at that performance, right? And, and so there, there's been a recent look at saying, hey, yes, you know, immediately following the, the, the extrinsic reward, if you look at, at these programs where, hey, I'm putting blocks together and then I'm paid and then once I'm stopped being paid, that, you know, I, I, I no longer play with those blocks, right? But that's the, the immediately afterwards or the next day. What they're not looking at is a couple weeks from, from that time or a month from that time or even a year later. And when they do, when they, they extend that measuring program out, what they're finding is that that intrinsic motivation ramps back up. And it ramps back up. And sometimes it might even ramp up to be either a little less or a little higher, but you know, significantly probably not much different. And I know yeah. you had done some research on that um, back in 
in some of your days and looking at some things just around incentive programs. Yeah, definitely. The, I, I was able to do some research on incentive programs for several years with uh, many, many uh, clients looking at uh, a baseline of activity that a sales rep might be uh, achieving for the three or four months prior to the incentive period and then measuring their their results during the incentive period, which of course was higher yep. you know, than, than the baseline. Um, and then uh, immediately following the incentive, uh, there is something that uh, Ron Kivitz calls the post incentive dip, that there is uh, sort of a natural fall off. And some of this might be sell forward, uh, that we didn't we didn't really finish all the things that we wanted to do on this, but there's, there's speculation that this could just be because they've sort of sold out everything that they possibly can. They move um, sales up in order uh, to get them into the incentive. Exactly. That would have exactly. been next month, but you know. But after, but after that dip, the level of activity, the level of performance and the sales didn't just return to the baseline level prior to the sales incentive, but actually higher than that. The, the, the typical sales rep developed skills and, and a level of momentum and activity and got used to selling more and actually did better after the, uh, the incentive period because they were churning out more stuff. They were doing more. And so much of sales is just, it, it is about activity. I mean, there's it's complex. I don't want to. Tr- I don't want to try to say that it's just about activity. It's much more complex than that. No, but but to that degree, what you're, what you are saying supports Matt's idea that you can build these habits up, to yes. subsequently wean people off of the the extrinsic reward, particularly as it relates to these health factors of taking your medicine and other factors, and get them to continue on. Uh, with those positive behaviors without that extrinsic reward being there. So right. I think that's fascinating because this is one of the biggest pieces, I think, that there's a lot of misconception out there in popular press, um, you know, uh, Drive um, um, and uh, the, the work by Alfie Cohn and all of those others. Uh, they talk about this extrinsic decreasing intrinsic motivation and in reality uh, that's probably a misnomer um, it, it probably takes place as you said you get that post incentive dip I like that but it is just a dip and then you know subsequent coming out of that it can actually increase uh, those positive behaviors moving forward so well yeah well we mentioned Teresa Mobley's work oh. and I have a, a tremendous amount of respect for the quality of her work and and she had has demonstrated that when it comes to creative work, it just doesn't make sense to try to offer some kind of a extrinsic reward for doing something that that is creative, that is much more, uh, much, you know, that is going to work better when it's intrinsically motivated. So I, I think, again, this is circumstantial and there are, there's a context in which this could work. You know, sales reps are, you know, uh, as people go, they're going to be higher on the scale of extrinsically motivated than anyone else. So uh, it doesn't apply to every job in every situation. And I'd also like to say, you know, Matt could do well to wean people off. You know, we the, the work that I was doing was looking at the incentive running and then stopping cold turkey. And uh, yet still we saw this this um, this halo effect of the of the way people would come back and perform at a higher level than their baseline after the incentive and weaning people off could be so much better 
if, if you had the opportunity to slowly take them off of the incentive, uh, the extrinsic incentive, and to allow the intrinsic uh, motivation to build up over time. I think it could well, be really, it, really cool. That would be interesting to see if that actually works better than just ripping the Band-Aid off and having that post dip for a little bit and then coming back up. So, yeah. uh, you know, and, and, and to that degree, hopefully... You know, this is the hard part when you're talking medicine and adherence and various different things. And a lot of these kind of medicines, these are life-altering, very important things. And so you would think just naturally there would be enough motivation to people to take their medicine. However, we know that that's not always the case. But maybe if you've gotten into the habit, you have now reduced the friction to the, the... the reasons that stopped you from taking your medicine before the extrinsic. In other words, that extrinsic was the the kick to get you to start doing this. And now that you're, you've started doing this, you no longer need that kick um, because you already are motivated enough by the positive health outcomes that you're getting. So maybe ripping that Band-Aid off isn't going to have that post-dip on there. And so th- those will be interesting things. And, it will you know, be. let's uh, yeah. get them back on the, on the show in a couple years and, and uh, find out more about some of the research. So Definitely. All right, my friend. Well, I think we're wrapping up. Yeah, I think we are too. And it's, uh, it's been fun talking to you from uh, the city. The here. city. All right. Well, (laughs) listeners, hopefully you have enjoyed this. Hopefully you've learned something. I think uh, if you have enjoyed this or learned it, we would very much appreciate you going out and leaving us a rating. We say that all the time. And, you know, it sounds like a broken record, but in reality, it is important to uh, allowing other people to find us. The, The big thing about the number of podcasts that are growing, which is fantastic, is that it is harder and harder for people to find uh, podcasts that are with their interests. And so by liking us, by giving us a review, you're actually increasing the likelihood that people who are interested in this will be able to find our podcast and listen to it. So with that, thank you and have a great New York or wherever you are today.